Hello, welcome. My name is Neha Vasakha and I'm the host of the podcast series The Feminist City. This is offered by Vidhi Center for Legal Policy and in the series we think about cities, our relationships with the city and exclusions in the city. Um I'm really happy to welcome Dr. Mohsin Alam Bhatt to this episode of the Feminist City podcast series. Dr. Bhatt is an associate professor and executive director of the Center for Public Interest Law at the Jinnah Global Law School. He did law at Nalsar University before completing his LLM and JSD from Yale Law School. His areas of research include constitutional law, equality, discrimination law, law, religion and social movements. He combines multiple methodologies, particularly ethnographic methods in the study of law. He's the principal investigator in the housing discrimination project which involves empirical research on urban rental housing discrimination in India. I'm really glad to be um welcoming him to join us and speak to us about his work. Thanks a lot uh, Dr. Bhatt for um uh, coming on to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you Sneha. Really nice to be here. Um so just to start off um with the conversation, could you tell us about the housing discrimination project that you are involved in? How did you come about um starting this project? What was the scope and you know w- what kind of methods you adopted and your brief findings, you know, um in and if you could just summarize that for us. Uh, absolutely. So this uh, project actually uh, uh started off quite small uh, i was just finishing my phd um and at that particular moment this is around 2016 there were a number of uh, uh, anecdotal media but also more serious academic studies on uh, religious and caste housing discrimination in india and uh, by training i'm a lawyer so at that moment what struck me quite intuitively was uh, the importance or relevance of law in dealing with this problem now as perhaps we will come to i slowly realized the limitations of law which perhaps is one of the findings of of this research but in any case uh, the idea at that moment was we got some uh, funding and the idea was to conduct an empirical research in delhi and bombay primarily and to really understand uh, discrimination and how it really operates to really understand the modalities and forms of discrimination because we assume that discrimination does happen there is enough evidence to show that what we actually didn't know was what are the different places it happens what happens when it happens so to say what are the implications what is the impact and of course the larger question of how can law and policy address these challenges so when this research really started in 2017 it was primarily in delhi i got together a really excellent bunch of uh, uh students and scholars and researchers uh who uh, came from very diverse backgrounds there were psychologists sociologists uh lawyers uh and eventually we got more funding and we expanded uh, to bombay and it eventually became almost a three year long study uh and we ended up collecting hundreds of interviews there were more than 300 interviews we focused on around 14 neighborhoods in delhi and bombay and some of the larger trends uh which we were able to capture with the following the first i think would be that we reaffirmed uh the evidence that there is religious discrimination in rental housing but equally important was our focus on intermediaries uh brokers were a very important set of respondents uh, who we interviewed and you know this was by and large uh, a qualitative project where we conducted 
uh, detailed interviews with Muslim Muslim brokers, Hindu brokers, owners, Muslim tenants, of course. And what came across by the end of the research was how exactly the rental process operates and what is the importance of access to rental housing, both directly with the owners, but also through these intermediaries. Uh, and our broad conclusion has been that there are some severe blockages in the rental access. And what discrimination actually does is it stops people not in the final stage when they are rejected by the owner, but when uh, it takes them far longer than people who usually do not get discriminated against to get housing. So the narratives which we got from Muslim tenants was not only that they were rejected, but that it was just exhausting to find a house. Many of them do find houses one way or the other, but it is that emotional toll, which for me was the most remarkable uh, sort of affective finding uh, yeah. of the Thank you so much. That actually, uh, that's really interesting. I, I, I guess the next question that I think I wanted to ask you is, um, could you just break it down for us? How the housing rental markets work in the city itself? What who are the different players? Does it differ from the two, two, three cities that you worked in? And could you speak more specifically to say, Muslim tenants, if they're say women or gender or sexual minorities, or if they're um, disadvantaged by class, for instance, what are the specific challenges sort of the diversity within the Muslim community face when they are trying to access this kind of uh, rental housing market? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. Um, so one of the things which we were quite aware of right from the beginning, from a, from a methodological point of view, was uh, to not end up interviewing people like us, um, people from a certain class who are usually privileged, um, English-speaking people who are professionals, but really try and diversify our repertoire of interviews. And the other thing we were very keen on is to keep the political economy of the rental market upfront. Um, and in fact, uh, there's very little good literature on rental housing, and that's one of the things we struggle with. More recently, there have been more scholars looking at this work, and they're, they're, they've been doing some excellent work. And the most striking thing about the rental market is that, um, you know, the census data tells us there one fourth approximately of uh, Indian cities have rental housing. Uh, I think it might be more in cities like Bombay, for instance, uh, rental market would be definitely more than one third uh, of available housing. And most of the people who are involved in providing rental housing to people, who the owners or the landlords, landladies, they are uh, small time landlords. Uh, by some accounts, 80% of landlords are small, single unit, five unit, poor landlords, and they essentially, you know, what some scholars call subsistent, uh, subsistence landlords. Um, and it was really important for us to really understand in these contexts, what are the pressures the landlords are under? And how do these pressures uh, determine the kind of relationship they have with brokers? And how does this create a system of access to rental housing? So one broad finding uh, we came to was that there is a deep sense of insecurity and precariousness in the rental market. That is because one, the kind of security of tenure, which usually exists in many, say, Western contexts, doesn't exist. You know, most of the owners here do not even have secure ownership of their land, either because they are informal, so-called informal spaces, they are slums, they are unorganized or unregulated, 
uh, uh, housing markets. Uh, the second thing is, and this reflected even in the tenure relationship, people either do not have contracts uh, for uh, rental agreements, uh, or they, you know, find different ways of remaining unregulated by law. So, for example, you know, it's very common to find 11-month-long tenancy contracts. That is exactly to sort of get over uh, existing law. Uh, and another important implication is that when landlords are under severe strain in terms of precariousness or insecurity, their dependence on the brokers increases tremendously. So more, what we found was that most brokers who operate in places like Delhi and Bombay, they are locals. So they are the neighbors, they live in these localities, and there's a deep amount of trust between the owner and the broker. This trust is fundamental. It is fundamental because broke, uh, because owners are worried that uh, rent won't be paid. They are worried that their property may be taken over because there's no security of tenure. They are worried that tenants may come and destroy things and that the legal process will not provide any redress. Now, why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this because this essentially means that the moment of crisis in the rental market, which feeds into practices of discrimination, is not only what the owner decides. That's our common imagination right that the owners are uh, discriminating or the owners are prejudiced but rather the kind of understanding quite implicit which happens between owners and brokers and how a person lands up at the owner's door if the broker is not on the side of the tenant and the broker is not able to vouch for the tenant then it's highly unlikely independent of the predispositions of the owner that the owner will be happy to have uh, have a tenant now this has a direct impact on discrimination because the, the experience of discrimination is not the discrete moment of rejecting a person but navigates this really messy space of the rental market uh, i am sure it will come up in our conversation but one of our broad sort of conclusions also was that if law and policy has to deal with discrimination it cannot just stop at uh, passing an anti-discrimination law for instance a space which is highly unregulated, where there's so much insecurity and precariousness, where there's so much dependency on intermediaries without focusing on access by state and by non-state intervention, this problem will not be resolved. That makes a lot of sense. I think what you're speaking to is also, I think, a systemic nature of the discrimination, right? I think as you point out in your writing, and which probably requires um, systemic solutions, but not um, ad hoc ones. Uh, I guess the, the question that I think I want to ask is, so what happens when it's, say, a Muslim woman who is trying to access housing in this network? So are there, uh, did you notice in the in the way that this, the, the, this discrimination operates when it's compounded by other facets of identity. Yeah, absolutely. So once it is clear to us that, uh, you know, what is the nature of this market and what is the role of trust networks, then uh, I think the conversation moves from only prejudice to, to social capital. Uh, because the issue over here is who are the people who are able to find these trust networks? So ordinarily, our understanding of the rental market is that uh, one, the rental market usually is the first stage for a person from outside to enter into a city, whether it's a professional or a working class person, uh, a man or a woman, uh, a transgender person. Usually the person uh, steps into the housing market and rent is the first step towards it. And this is, uh, this is our imagination that eventually people would want to own a house that, that still exists and that may be a problem and perhaps we can come to that later. 
but if the access to the central market depends so much on these trust networks in the background of this insecurity, then the bigger question is who are the people who are able to access this trust network. In our findings, the impact of discrimination is therefore not only rejection, but in the kind of blockages which come up in accessing these networks that eventually help people reach the rental market. Now, what are the different ways in which social capital plays a role in accessing rental markets? So identity is one of the most important things. So I end up going to a city and I am a Muslim or I am a middle class person or I'm an engineer or I am I speak a particular language. And those are uh, the, the markers. And apart from that, there are also important sources of social capital because they give me access to those kind of networks. People end up going to places where people like them already exist and those are the networks people recreate. The impact of discrimination, particularly of the systemic kind of discrimination, say for instance against Muslims, is that all other forms of available networks which a person can tap onto because of their social capital vanish apart from just one that is religion. So what in short religion or discrimination does is it completely destroys all other routes apart from just one. So if a Muslim comes to a Bombay or a Delhi, and then there is systemic widespread discrimination, the person, in other words, is reduced to that identity. And this is this is a narrative which we constantly heard from people, right? And we struggle with trying to figure out what does that mean? It not only means that you know, whenever a person tells us that they felt reduced to their identity when they were in the rental market, that is not only that they were constantly reminded of it, but also because that was literally the only identity, only social capital they could rely on in order to get access to the rental market. I think this particular insight is applicable across the board, uh, whether you're a woman, whether you are a gay person coming to a city, um, whether you are a single uh, woman professional, uh, what happens is that the only kind of network you can access is the network which is purely dedicated to help you out. And completely anecdotally, even though we did not do any research, say for instance, uh, uh, on women coming coming to the city looking for uh, rental housing, but quite often the stories we heard anecdotally from them was that, well, you know, when we asked my friend, who's a, who's a lawyer, who's come from, say, a Lucknow to Delhi, and I asked her, you know, how did you find your house? Invariably, somebody like her would tell me, oh, I asked another woman, how did you find a house? another woman lawyer from UP, how did you find a house? And the reason for that is that for discriminated groups, all other available options vanish. It stops matching whether you're a Hindi speaker or middle class person or whatever. The only access route you have is the identity on the basis of which you get discriminated against. I think that also explains why discrimination, particularly in the case of Muslims, leads to segregation. Because these kind of networks by and large merge towards certain areas of the city and that those are the areas which eventually feed into households from the um, So yeah, that would be my sort of assessment and my learning from this research which speaks to all other groups Got it. Uh, who also tend to get systemically discriminated against. Okay, well, thank you so much for sharing that. I think um, the question I wanted to ask you next is, in the course of your research, when you were speaking to all of these, um, say, house owners or brokers, 
what were sort of the narratives that were emerging that sort of underpins this kind of prejudicial uh, thinking? Were there any recurring uh, themes that you were coming across, assumptions and stereotypes that people were sort of uh, repeating? And, and I think something that you write really well is, is, is about how you talked about these unwritten rules that sort of, you know, govern localities about who can live or rent there and sort of how that exists you know, alongside like popular imaginations about, you know, the right to housing or so could you just speak to that about the the social imagination that sort of underpins this kind of discrimination and how that sits with, say, if there is, is there an emerging consciousness of, say, the fact that housing is something that everybody should uh, be afforded to as Right. Well? So I think there are two big questions. So let me first come to uh, the narratives of uh, discrimination and what people say. Um, so, the, you know, when we started the research, I wasn't expecting uh, that we'll get lots of brokers or owners confessing, if I may use that word, uh, of discriminating. It is quite remarkable how open people were in saying that they refused to accept certain kind of people. Uh, Maybe because uh, we were interviewing brokers in both Delhi and Bombay, and we had built some sort of trust with them. Maybe because they were also able to distance themselves from the decisions of the owners. I'm not sure why, but when we looked at our transcripts again, it was quite dramatic how many brokers just said they do not entertain Muslims. Uh, they never uh, try and find a house for Muslims, or they reject Muslims themselves or more common that the owners would never accept Muslims. They said that they claimed based on their previous experience. And what they said was rather standard, very familiar um, stereotyping uh, of Muslims. They are violent, who knows whether they are terrorists, uh, they are dirty, uh, they have too many children, uh, or the more benevolent <laughs> brokers would say uh, that, oh, they anyway will not be happy in living among Hindus. So, you know, it's best that they, they go to uh, Muslim areas. Um, and what we consciously, right in the beginning, focused a lot on neighborhoods, which uh, uh, were, so to say, on the boundary between a Muslim concentrated and a non-Muslim concentrated area. Uh, because we really wanted to understand the impact on segregation as well. So it was, we quite often found brokers who would say, no, no, why would, why would Muslims come here? Even if they come here, we send them off to that nearby Muslim locality because of all these said reasons. The other uh, set of narratives, particularly from the brokers, uh, was discrimination, but of the indirect variety. So they would, they would not say that, uh, you know, we refuse housing to Muslims, but they say we refuse housing to non-vegetarians. And this is something that came up both in Delhi, but of course a lot in, in Bombay. And one of our puzzles was, you know, how much of it is a sincere issue? Uh, and I, I don't want to uh, undermine the sincerity of the people who uh, sort of told me that. But I did have numerous respondents, brokers and others who told us that, listen, we don't want to land into trouble. Uh, we can't tell a person that you're not going to get a house because you're so-and-so, you're a Muslim or whatever. A good way to uh, tell them that they are not going to get a house is by reducing it down to vegetarian, non-vegetarian. And these, these kind of interviews usually happen in Bombay. And perhaps the reason for that is that housing discrimination in Bombay has been much more in the news. There have been a few cases where police complaints have been filed uh, against owners or housing societies. 
So I think there is this weird sort of uh, feeling among brokers or even housing societies that you know we have to exclude people, but we can't openly say it, and therefore let's just say it like this. But everybody really knows what is going on, and so it's it's all uh, quite cute, if I may call it that. Um, but I think a more profound way of exclusion, and you know, and I think we we are playing with two different words here. One is discrimination, the other is exclusion. Um, and I'm going to shift gears. The, the more profound way in which exclusion tends to happen is when um, when you know nobody takes a call and explicitly discriminates against somebody. And this is what you know in some of the other pieces I've called the common sense, uh, the urban common sense. And this urban common sense is really important. We need to have some sort of sociology of this. Because it is true that in many places where we did our interviews, uh, which was so-called mixed, but essentially when we say mixed, it's basically it's mostly Hindu uh, areas, Muslims did not ordinarily go to try, a house, uh, try and find a house there. It was quite rare. Um, also that most brokers did not even explicitly refuse people, but they found houses for Muslim tenants in Muslim localities. Uh, this in, in literature, this is often called steering. So steering happens when you go to a certain place, the person, broker doesn't say no, but the broker basically steers you to a, a more desirable locality. And this happened a lot in, uh, in the United States. It was well documented where black tenants were essentially steered towards black neighborhoods. Uh, and this happens not because the people like brokers or owners or even tenants for that matter are actively choosing these things. But because it's understood who belongs where. A Muslim tenant will not even try after spending two years trying to find a house in a non-Muslim locality to go back to a non-Muslim locality to find a house. A Muslim tenant would realize, would discover his or her place in the city. I imagine the same thing would go for an individual from any other community which tends to get discriminated against. I would be very surprised if uh, a, a person um, who's gay is trying to find a house in Delhi, even after spending a few weeks, I'm sure the person knows that there are certain routes he or she has to use in order to reach a house in Delhi, rather than just going up to a, the nearest broker and saying, you know, can you help me try and find a house? And that is because we sort of internalize the way our, our, our society and our geography is designed, and it is embedded in the common sense of everybody who participates in it whether it's the broker or the owner or even a tenant. Um, and that was one of the, the most sobering of conclusions because we did a number of interviews in Muslim localities of Muslim tenants try, to try and find out, uh, did they ever try and find a house outside a non-Muslim or Hindu concentrated localities? Uh, if they did, what was their experience? And we realized that tremendous number of people did not even attempt to try and find a house outside, even when it would have really suited them well. Uh, it would have suited them because maybe it was closer to their places of work, uh, that it, they could afford it, it had more open spaces, for a variety of reasons. And a number of Muslim tenants told us, uh, among lots of other reasons, also told us that, listen, we'll never get a house outside. Uh, and that is not only because they have explicitly been rejected multiple times, but because they know this is what they have heard. This is what their relatives have told, told them. And this is sort of a profound common sense of the city 
which people one way or the other get to learn and get to live with so that they stop resisting really and that 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 is sort of the sobering uh, conclusion after a number of interviews Well, that is uh, that is a very um, sobering thing to hear i think and i um i guess the next question i want to ask sort of ties in with what you've described because i mean a lot of people have written about the ghettoization of indian cities and in the ways in which communities are sort of uh, pushed into certain you know in, in these geographical or concentrated in geographical areas because of segregation and discrimination and you um in your work also note that even in mixed use neighborhoods if you mixed or oh, sorry mixed neighborhoods you've noted if you look closely that there was segregation could you talk a little bit about that about how what you noticed and in terms of how this sort of also ties in with i think there's a lot of writing also in terms of how see communal violence or a uh, caste and religion based discrimination occurs in the form of access to land and housing ownership and and how it sort of um, is tied to uh see the history of a particular city itself and how it's developed so i was just curious about um if you if in the course of your work these kinds of questions also emerged in terms of the the the, the relationships between segregation access to opportunity and what is what what is the impact of this on a long term basis yeah i mean these are great questions and not the easy questions to answer for the following well my answer perhaps will tell you why these are difficult questions to answer but let me start sort of from the perspective of the research itself so one of the key questions for the research was one of course whether rental housing discrimination exists what are the forms and modalities but also the impact of uh, housing discrimination and one of the key impacts we wanted to sort of test was whether rental housing discrimination in particular contributes to segregation and what we mean by segregation at that moment we thought is rather obvious right that that when there are communities uh, whether based on caste or religion or race that are not living together and there could be degrees of segregation at one level all our cities are segregated uh, that is for historical reasons uh, people from same communities end up going and occupying similar kind of places and then these clusters sort of enlarge uh, and you know you know if, if you're from delhi you would know that a cr park is a bengali neighborhood and uh, punjabi bag is a punjabi neighborhood and the people from post partition refugees who settled down in certain areas like a lajpat nagar or something will have a certain texture and therefore segregation at one level is just something that may not necessarily have resulted from discrimination but because of historical patterns of people moving in the same thing we can say about a bangalore or a, or a bombay or mumbai or any other any other city uh, so the question for us was well uh, fine there would be these historical patterns of segregation but does housing discrimination enhance segregation but when we started trying to test this hypothesis we landed into deep trouble and that is because we didn't know what segregation was when we landed on the ground and that is because whenever we are trying to define segregation we need to identify the units right we need to say okay a one district has concentration of x and another district has concentration of y hence segregation or a ward or a neighborhood or a locality but the deeper we went we were like wait a second what is the unit for segregation should it be a colony as it's often called should it be a housing society should it be a street can two streets be segregated 
there in many places where we went down on this uh, on the ground to do these uh, interviews we realized that the street has 50 50 let's say 50% muslim houses 50% hindu houses but they're clustered so five houses are muslims on one side and five houses are muslim hindus on the other side is the segregation and we realized that the word segregation does not really help us in this particular situation why because we had already started realizing that what really matters is not just segregation in terms of space but segregation in terms of access and segregation in terms of the network people used to reach a house so to give you an example i live in a building on the same floor there are two other houses suppose i am a hindu another person is a hindu and the third person is a muslim is this floor segregated doesn't look like it right but i would like to suggest it actually is because the two hindus who have landed up on this floor have accessed the rental market in a completely different fashion from how that muslim reached that floor and that is because the muslim as i already suggested did not have access to the same kind of social capital the same breadth of network he could not land up to the same broker as i did he had to find an owner who was happy to have a muslim he had to find a broker who had a relationship with that owner he had to have like a decent relationship with that broker who was happy to who was not prejudiced and who was happy to help this person reach that floor so even if we end up on the same floor segregation may not be spatial in nature but segregation can have other profound manifestation which is in terms of networks of access so that would be one sort of if i may dare say a theoretical intervention in trying to redefine segregation but of course that doesn't mean spatial segregation doesn't exist and it it's not important it's really important and there's tremendous literature and research in india and abroad showing how bad segregation is uh, obviously there is alienation communities do not end up living together uh, and one element of segregation is also ghettoization but since i've used the word ghettoization i also would like to clarify that you know the word ghetto is often not well used very often because uh, in many of my even ordinary conversations people tend to associate a muslim neighborhood to be a ghetto um and that is not a good thing simply because the word ghetto is a stigmatizing word and just because muslims live together in a particular place or dalits live together in a particular place that is doesn't automatically become a ghetto yes it, it is a segregated space like all our spaces are segregated spaces but that that particular space is not a ghetto the better use of the word ghetto is the way you used it right now which is it's a process and ghettoization as a process means that when certain communities in india there's tremendous evidence to show both dalits and muslims are forced into certain spaces because of violence or discrimination or a feeling of alienation and in addition because certain spaces are predominantly occupied by dalits or muslims then there are less public amenities there is less uh, productive policing uh, there is uh, there is less space for children to play there are uh, no schools etc etc so absolutely there is a long process of ghettoization and what we found uh, and i imagine what our contribution to that conversation around ghettoization particularly religious ghettoization was two things i think the first was that we found that we found evidence of this process of ghettoization in the context of rental housing discrimination 
because when we went into muslim concentrated spaces and asked people as i told you you know have you tried finding house outside they told us that they'll never get a house outside because there is they are convinced that people will discriminate against them that reflected alienation and that is a process of of ghettoization and the second aspect of that ghettoization was as i told you that we didn't we, we chose our neighborhoods based on the boundaries between muslim concentrated and hindu concentrated area and another thing our muslim uh, respondents told us by and large was their bad experiences with dealing with their neighbors living in hindu concentrated areas so for instance our respondents in delhi told us in in muslim concentrated localities in in south delhi that the shops in the hindu areas never give them credit that when their children go and play in a garden uh, which is in the middle of uh, hindu and a muslim concentrated localities then the people from so called other neighborhoods are very unhappy with them coming and sharing the space and that deepens the kind of alienation which exists uh, among people and that definitely contributes to both uh, ghettoization but also it contributes further to the reluctance of discriminated against communities like muslims to even attempt to find a house outside because this just reinforces their view that they'll never be able to get a house um again as far as the question of violence is concerned uh, there is again a lot of uh, literature there are scholars who have talked about you know the role that violence plays in creating segregated spaces places like ahmedabad and mumbai are right there at the top where violence has directly led to the creation of segregation but the feeling that there will be violence seems to be a very important um theme in our interviews with muslim tenants and one thing which sort of surprised me a bit was that you know in mumbai i was expecting that i was expecting that when we will talk to muslim or uh, tenants or muslim residents they will tell us that listen we ended up going to a muslim concentrated area because there was 1992 and you know we you know we will be face violence otherwise um in delhi it was quite common and i two things that uh, the respondents told us the first was that even though delhi had never till very recently well, we did our interviews before the delhi riots uh, but till very recently had not had very sort of severe um pattern of communal violence what they told us was that where they had come from in to delhi those places had faced violence so they had come from adarbanga or muradabad or meerut and they would say that listen we in our memory there this violence had happened and therefore we would come to muslim concentrated areas for security the second was the 1984 uh, anti sikh violence uh i did not expect to find uh, the resonance of that episode among the muslim residents of delhi uh particularly in south delhi in older localities like hazrani for instance the number of muslim residents who told us that listen what happened in 1984 um so it seems that there is this sort of minority um minority memory and that minority memory shared that if some other community also faced God. it okay. it reinforces one's own insecurities about where one belongs to in the city mm, so. thanks a lot for sharing that i think um, uh what i also wanted to ask you is so far we've talked about say the process by which i suppose um 
I'm uh, hesitant to use the word segregation, but if, if for instance, this concentration of, of, of communities living together takes place, one of the things in the course of my research that we were doing in terms of thinking about the city from a feminist perspective is to find that often for women and girls in a particular neighborhood, there is community surveillance insofar as their ability to move freely. So which is why one of the methods that say, um, urban feminist urban planners uh, sort of advocate is mixed neighborhoods, um, having different, a wide diversity of people living in a particular area so that there's always, say, eyes on the street, but this eyes on the street doesn't become patriarchal or community surveillance, but there's an anonymity that sort of affords people both safety as well as freedom. I was actually curious if you came across any kinds of narratives in terms of what the experiences of, say, girls and women in the community faced in navigating, say, living in areas that were that 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 sort of are dominated by the community they come from. That was part one of the question. The second I wanted to ask is if you also came across narratives where this sort of uh, access to public infrastructure, whether it is public services, water, sanitation, etc., uh, which, as we discussed, uh, touched upon earlier in the conversation, that may not be invested in where communities um, who are sort of marginalized in the city live in. Uh, how does that impact, say, the domestic economy within the community? Um, so coming to your first question, I completely agree with you. And um, a number of interviews, particularly of Muslim women, that we did, uh, reflected this concern. So even though directly we did not study the role of neighborhood surveillance and disciplining when it particularly came to gender and came to women, uh, I think we can infer from our interviews that our respondents did feel that. So almost all Muslim women told us that they were quite keen not to live in Muslim concentrated areas precisely for the reasons you mentioned. Uh, but of course, as the interviews tell us, that they really struggled to find a house outside these Muslim concentrated areas. So, and, and we were lucky enough to have interviews with really impressive women uh, who were very independent and who had traveled in different parts of the country and who were uh, now in Delhi or in Bombay as, as professionals, so, and they also had the ability to buy uh, or to rent high, and they still weren't able to do it. And they invariably told us that they were not keen uh, precisely for these reasons. And one, just anecdotally, if I could sort of share that, um, one very funny instance, which happened quite early in um, our field research was, I was doing these pilots in early 2017, I think in Bombay, and there was this one particular Muslim property dealer broker who uh, I wanted to interview for this pilot in Badala. And the reason I wanted to uh, meet him was that uh, right before that, maybe a year or so before that, there had been an incident in North Mumbai where a Muslim family was about to move into a housing society. And the housing society passed a it was a bought a house. From, from a Hindu family and uh, right before they moved in, this housing society passed a re resolution saying that they can't come in uh, because they are Muslim. So this sort of became a huge thing and an FIR was filed, the first information report uh, on provisions under the Indian Penal Code which uh, prohibit creating uh, you, know, you know, animosity between communities, etc. This is usually the provision 153B which was used. 
And as it turns out, I found out that this guy who I was about to go and meet, he was spearheading that particular movement of, you know, fighting discrimination. So I wanted to go and meet him because I wanted to, one, obviously understand what the mechanics of all this is, but also sort of to meet a person who's fighting the good fight, right? And who wants to um, reject religious discrimination and segregation, etc. So I land up at his place, there's a long conversation, and he's a really entertaining fellow. And he gives me a lot of details about, you know, what is happening in Bombay, etc., etc. All familiar things now, after two years, I agree with his assessment. But right before I was about to leave, I just called a cab, I was waiting for a cab. He suddenly got a call on his uh, phone, and I realized that, oh, no, he's also a broker, right? He also helps people buy a house and rent out a house. And I had not asked him a single question about his experience of being a broker. And I thought that was an important thing to ask him as a pilot. So when he put down the phone, I was waiting for the cab. I was like, so you're a broker, right? And he said, yeah, of course. And I said, oh, that's great. So uh, so what do you do when uh, you know Muslims uh, come to you? Uh, how do you manage to find them a house in Hindu localities? That's how I literally framed the question. And he said, no, it's not very difficult. For example, just recently, there were these two Muslim women who had come to me. I made sure that they got a house in uh, the Muslim neighborhood uh, where I have a number of houses. And I said, oh, so they wanted to go to that Muslim neighborhood. And he's like, no, no, they wanted to go to the Hindu neighborhood. I think that also worked well. But then I thought, you know, they are Muslim women. They would feel safer in a Muslim mahal or a Muslim environment. And, you know, we'll be there to protect them, etc. It's not very good for, you know, single Muslim women to not live in Muslim neighborhoods. It's, it's not a good thing. And it just suddenly struck me. Obviously, these are early days. Even though it shouldn't have surprised me. But after all, I'm a man. It doesn't these things don't strike me as easily. Um, that here's a man who's fighting religious discrimination and segregation, etc. But when it comes to those two women who want to live an independent life, he wants to send them right back in the middle of the community. Um, we unfortunately were unable to do a number of interviews. It was slightly on the edge of our research mandate. Uh, but I think this sort of speaks to this weird sort of dilemma. Uh, and what kind of discrimination people are able to see and what kind of discrimination they just assume is completely legitimate. Uh, you know, just on the other side, if you ask a, a Hindu broker or an owner, he would say exactly that for a Muslim, right? That Muslims would feel better if they go to a Muslim locality. I don't hate Muslims at all, but that, that's where they belong. And here's this man who I thought was the torchbearer of equality, who did exactly the same thing when it came to, uh, came to women. On the second question about uh, public infrastructure and uh, domestic economy, now we didn't dig too much into it, and I don't know whether I have enough material uh, to share in terms of the impact rental housing has on the domestic economy. I also feel in Bombay and Delhi, uh, the rental economy is quite um, active in all sorts of areas. So there's no reason to believe that it is more active in one place or the other. One of the hypotheses we wanted to test was whether because of religious discrimination, housing properties or how rents are higher or lower in Muslim areas or Hindu areas, or that for Muslims, the rent is higher in one place and not the other. Uh, I hope other researchers are able to do that kind of work. We were unable to find uh, any clear evidence on it. So, for instance, a few people did tell us that um, uh, Muslims are asked for more rent, particularly Muslim tenants told us that, but 
we weren't able to sort of establish it through uh, a very sort of social, social scientifically rigorous method as such, but anecdotally we heard that. Also, some property owners, especially in Muslim concentrated areas, told us that whenever there is a spike in violence or whenever there is an increase in discrimination, then property rates, even in those Muslim areas which are rather shabby, for instance, they are inflated because the demand among Muslims increases because Muslims want to come in because they have either no other option or they are scared, etc. Actually, a number of people did tell us that I was hoping that we'll be able to do some sort of like a statistical assessment of this. That became really difficult simply because many of these areas are unauthorized areas. It's quite difficult to get uh, a clear, accurate picture of the pricing and the amount of resources that would have taken us were perhaps a bit much for our budget. Uh, but I do hope that uh, political economists and people who study the housing market are able to tell us how pricing changes and fluctuates based on discriminatory practices or because of violence. So I'm hoping to see that. No, I think uh, that was, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, that was a very comprehensive answer. And I sort of, you've sort of paved sort of, uh, the way into the next question. I think in terms of what the role of the law is and role of the government is itself, uh, both in terms of, as you pointed out, that um, discrimination in the project that you looked at is not, um, is, 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 an on, is, a, is a process. And like you said, it's what... Uh, resources it takes out of someone who's trying to navigate this and so how do you see um see the role of law um and the role of governments insofar as see this private rental housing market is concerned have you come across any models that has looked at discrimination as a structural issue and uh you know uh come up with ways to tackle it beyond say the pass passage of a anti-discrimination law but even not limited to that like I, I would just like to know yeah your thoughts and uh, yeah um yeah that that is obviously a really really important question and uh it depends on when you ask me there are moments i'm optimistic about the law there are other moments usually right after that that i'm less optimistic uh so this is where i stand at the moment um, there is no comprehensive anti-discrimination law, uh, particularly dealing with housing, private housing market in India. Um, there has been over the last few years a very vibrant conversation around equality laws. Um, such a committee report, and we had the Equal Opportunities Commission report, uh, had recommended having these kind of anti-discrimination laws. And as, as I said right in the beginning of our conversation, when I started working on these issues, that is the perspective I was coming in from. I was like, you know, I'll be able to create a case for an anti-discrimination law. I'm not against anti-discrimination laws. Um, perhaps it's a good idea. Um, or oh, definitely it's, it's, it's a good idea. I think that my research at the moment shows that these kind of laws will not make as much impact as we would like them to. For at least a couple of reasons. The first is that India's rental market is highly unregulated. Uh, so in a space which doesn't already have the presence of law in a meaningful fashion for a variety of reasons, either because the land tenure is outside legal regulation or the contracts happen outside legal regulation, people have huge incentives not to record their contracts, they don't want to pay taxes on these things. Um, and without the role of law anyway, 
in these spaces i don't know whether anti discrimination law is a particular particular way of regulating uh, would be effective the second is that even though there is no anti discrimination law in india uh, discrimination continues to be hidden for a variety of reasons i've already discussed um so people never uh, or rarely ever tell the tenants that they were they are refusing housing to them because of their religion or because of their caste and even in cases where there has been uh, legislation of this kind uh, these kind of problems always come up so in the us for instance where this whole de- debate around staring is happening this is exactly the context right how staring as a hidden way of discriminating by brokers is actually a way of defeating the aims and ambitions of an anti discrimination legislation so with these problems i think even if we do have an anti discrimination law it will not be effective so what will be effective and i feel that if we focus rather on the moment of discrimination the moment of rejection on the ground of religion or caste or gender whatever but rather focus on questions of access then perhaps we'll be in a better position to deal with this problem so so the advantage of framing the problem of exclusion and discrimination not only in terms of discrimination as rejection but as discrimination from cap social capital and access would be that state and non state must intervene to reform the access rules one way to do it obviously would be to improve public housing and particularly public housing in the rental space so at the moment uh, there has been a historical bias in favor of sale housing ownership as a way for dealing with housing problems including public housing uh, more recently over the last 10 years i think there is more focus in public policy on the role of rental housing to provide housing security uh, to a number of people also because of the rate of migration has increased and also there is a broader appreciation that ownership can't be the only way in which we deal with problems of housing insecurity but much more needs to be done the state has to step in improve public rental space the second is introducing transparency and i don't have a clear policy model here but it seems to me that if the state and other non state actors can come in and improve the transparency the kind of information that is available to tenants in order to access rental housing that would be a major improvement because at the moment there are very few options available to a tenant anyway and particularly if the tenant is from a discriminated community those options radically reduce and for a major reason that is not only because discrimination happens but because there is lack of transparency and information and that would be quite an important direction for policy uh, to evolve there are a couple of cases uh, uh, where i've seen people trying to do that outside the state the state hasn't done that but outside the state of course you know many facebook groups are hoping to do that Uh, there are different groups which are trying to get together non-discriminating owners and saying you know we uh, have a catalog of rental uh, rental housing where nobody is discriminated against i have huge sympathy for those kind of efforts but the kind of challenge we are facing uh, is so large that that has to be far far more ambitious than it already is so perhaps a combination of an anti-discrimination law a massive investment in public housing particularly public uh, or government rental housing government and non state stepping in to improve transparency in access 
Uh, and of course, a larger campaign, a conversation that discrimination based on identity, on orientation, on uh, eating habits is just unacceptable to, if I may be permitted to use the word, stigmatize that kind of discrimination. That is just not cool. Um, is hopefully a, a good set of strategies. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I just had to interject. I want to ask you, uh, is tenant unions that sort of, I've read a little bit about tenant unions that sort of came up during the pandemic, say in the US, etc., where people sort of started advocating for rent freezes, especially because of what was going on. Is that kind of a model even possible in the legal framework in the country? In your research, did you come across any tenant sort of organizing at all uh, in insofar as some of these questions are concerned, maybe directly or indirectly, where people coming together and, uh, yeah, is that such a, uh, that was just... Um, so, yeah, as in, I don't know in how many kinds of spaces okay. uh, those kind of experiments can even happen, forget about succeed. Okay. That is because by and large tenants are also in a really precarious situation. Yeah. Uh, so in, in a context in which there are no laws, owners have predominant power over the tenure of the tenant. If a tenant sort of mobilizes or a set of tenants mobilize, I don't know whether they'll be able to uh, pressurize um, the others. Uh, but there are a couple of other things. In certain contexts, maybe in a rent control context where the tenancy is really protected, uh, that we know that you know rent control laws continue to exist in many parts of the country because tenants have managed to mobilize together and work as pressure groups on, on the government. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure whether I know exactly how this would operate. I didn't come across these things in the, in the field. But my sort of note, on a, just on a note of caution, I don't think we should necessarily frame this as this great battle between tenants and owners. Uh, it really is not. Um, I think there is a growing consciousness that there needs to be balancing and some amount of deregulation of the rental market. Okay. Uh, that owners and tenants are not necessarily at loggerheads. Some scholars have also pointed out that owners should not automatically be treated as antagonists in the story because owners do provide valuable uh, assets for housing. Uh, what we need is genuinely meaningful mature regulation of this market, which also opens up assets for a large, large number of people. But when it comes to the question of discrimination, the issue will remain, how do we have a very public conversation about rejecting discrimination? And how do we create systems, both public and non-public, where uh, people have better, easier, more transparent access to those. Got it. Okay, so I think, uh... Uh, the last question I guess I wanted to ask you is, you are a legal academic yourself and um, you, uh, in this project, you had a highly interdisciplinary team. I, I sort of was curious because in law school, while we technically are supposed to study, you know, the social sciences, it's not really integrated in the way that we are taught or think about the law. I was just curious about um, what you think in terms of how legal education and sort of how uh, say jurisprudence around the right to housing itself uh, needs to encompass uh, numerous things that you pointed out that this is not just a question of law but it 
encompasses political economy, social identity, you know, a, a range of other disciplines. And I was just curious about, uh, yeah, particularly on our lawn geography, for instance. I was just curious about what your thoughts were, were doing this project um, as an academic in terms of how law is taught, framed, and, you know, uh, articulated in popular conversations. Um, yeah, that, um, I don't have a number of thoughts, so I'll try and summarize some of them. I think in terms of jurisprudence, the court, oh, as far as I understand, hasn't spoken much about rental housing discrimination as such, but uh, even the small occasions when the Supreme Court has spoken about it, I think it speaks volume. Uh, so, of course, there's that famous Rastrian Society case where the Supreme Court basically said that housing societies can exclude based on identity. And one of, so I could, one can spend hours discussing that case, but one of the most striking things, and I hope, you know, your listeners will look at that case. But for me, at least the striking key, striking thing about that case was how the court reduced the question of housing, housing security, exclusion, discrimination, dignity, to this conflict between private property and culture. Okay. Um, also because uh, the housing cooperative society movement itself in, in places like Bombay and Maharashtra, were based on trying to find ways in which residents could live together in a democratic framework. Democracy really matters when we are thinking about uh, access to housing and uh, an anti-discrimination ethic. And I hope the court is able to revisit that soon. And I hope that lawyers and law students pay close attention to how we assume exclusion in the uh, space and we just don't see it anymore, that we just think that this is natural and normal. Um, I also hope one day uh, law students will uh, study law in space and law in geography much more. Uh, for me, it was a great revelation how uh, spatial justice and rights on the city are such important themes, but understudied uh, in, in our, just in our pedagogies as a scholars working on these things. So I hope more and more people do it. And our research fundamentally was interdisciplinary because we cared about the the market, we cared about political economy, we cared about the in psychological impact on people. Uh, personally, I gained a lot from all my friends who joined the research, um, particularly the sociologists and psychologists, I think were just absolutely remarkable. And uh, that will remain for me the most important thing uh, about the research. Personally, for me, that I got to learn from so many different people. So for instance, one of our uh, colleagues who is a psychologist, spent a lot of time in Muslim concentrated areas in Delhi. And she was able to give such amazing accounts, and she's written on it, amazing accounts of uh, the experience of a Muslim woman uh, who may come from exactly the same uh, sort of, you know, who may come from very different class, religion, background, but in many ways share the same kind of anxieties as she does. And I think that really taught us a lot about how to go about doing research, how to learn from each other's methodology. Okay. So I hope moving forward, uh, my own professional community of lawyers and law students will be able to gain from these kind of conversations about space, interdisciplinarity, and justice. Thank you so much. That was such a wonderful answer. Thanks a lot for taking time and speaking with me. I mean, I... Uh... 
got so much to learn just reading about your work and even just listening to you talk about this um i will be sure to include all the readings that we discuss and the writing that uh that came out of the housing discrimination project in the list of readings that will accompany this episode uh thanks a lot dr bhat for uh, speaking with me today thank you so much sir it was absolutely wonderful mutual i really really enjoyed it